All right, well, today is October 31st, so I'm sure you know what that means. What today is, is Reformation Day. Most think of October 31st as Halloween, but it also happens to be the same day marking the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And in my 10 years here, because of leap years, October 31st has never fallen on a Sunday. And now we normally preach through books of the Bible verse by verse here, but I reserve the right to preach on key topics every now and then, and that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to use our time together this morning to expose you to this rich part of our Christian heritage concerning the Reformation. The Reformation marked a return to the truths of Scripture alone, and that's still our firm foundation today, and I want to expose you to this foundation by way of introduction, that the Reformation doesn't start with Martin Luther, but that's where we will start. Martin Luther was born in Germany in 1483, and he started by studying law as a youth. But on a summer day in 1505, he was almost killed by a lightning storm. It struck right next to him, knocked him off his horse, knocked him to the ground. He was scared for his life, and in desperation, he prayed, and he said, St. Anne, help me. I shall become a monk if you save me. Luther survived, and he followed through on his vow. He left law, the study of law, and he entered an Augustinian monastery. There, Luther agonized much over the state of his soul. He was angry at God, whom he viewed as mostly wrathful and unloving. And he was never certain of his own salvation. His repentance was never good enough. He always went to his confessor, feeling that he had forgotten some sinful thought or deed. He was tormented. Luther's confessor was Johannes Staupitz. He took a more lenient approach to God, emphasizing God's grace and mercy. And he told Luther to focus more on what the Bible says over Catholic theology. Well, later in 1511, Luther took a trip to Rome. This proved to be the most influential and life-changing trip. He walked around the great capital city of the church with high expectations But then he was extremely disappointed by the the blasphemy and immorality of the city. The selling of indulgences was particularly disturbing where priests were selling people basically the right to sin. And also the priests in Rome proved to be immoral, corrupt, and some were outwardly unbelieving. Luther came home disillusioned and looking for answers. And these answers came in the years between 1513 and 1518, While preparing a series of lectures on the book of Romans, Luther had what is known as his tower experience. He was struggling with how God's God's righteousness and his mercy could both be true at the same time. He was struck by, by the teaching of Romans that says the righteous shall live by faith. And he came to a true understanding of these words saying, quote, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of these words, namely, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live, end quote. And Luther's view of salvation was revolutionized by this this true understanding of justification by grace through faith alone. Not faith plus works, but faith alone. But even throughout throughout all this time, as he was coming to an understanding of the truth, he stayed within the Catholic Church. He sought reform from within. Now we come to the year 1517. 
a man named Tetzel visited a town near Wittenberg where Luther was selling indulgences. This was done to raise funds for the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And Tetzel had a famous slogan to sell indulgences. It went, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. Luther's parishioners were going to his town, buying these indulgences, coming back and telling Luther that they didn't need to confess anymore, that they, they could sin because they had his piece of paper showing they were forgiven. Luther was outraged. He felt compelled to expose this fraud. And this led to the posting of his 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. These theses were meant to start a scholarly debate about the sale of indulgences and the corruption within the priesthood. But Luther was challenging the church. For example, in in thesis number 82, he questioned the Pope. Why he lets souls out of purgatory for money. If he has the power to let souls out of purgatory, why not just let them out for free? Now, although Luther didn't intend this, his theses were widely disseminated because the printing press had just come around, and this ignited the fires of Reformation. The Catholic Church, of course, went after Luther. He was a hero to the people, but an enemy of the church. On January 3rd, 1521, Luther was excommunicated by the Pope. He was summoned to appear before Emperor Charles V at his imperial court in the city of Worms in 1521. And when ordered by the Pope's representatives to recant his heretical views, he said this, quote, My conscience is captive to the word of God. This I cannot and will not recant. For going against my conscience is neither safe nor salutary. I can do no other. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. End quote. Luther was declared an outlaw and he would have been killed. But he was saved and protected by Prince Frederick the Wise. At this point, it's pretty clear that there was not going to be any reform from within the Catholic Church. This had to take place now outside the church, breaking away. Luther went on to translate the New Testament into German so that the people could read the Bible for the first time. And then from the foundation of the scriptures alone, Luther and then many other reformers start challenging the church's false teaching on salvation and a host of other issues. They had rediscovered the truths of the Bible, which the early church championed, but had had been lost and obscured by centuries of Catholic tradition. The fires of Reformation would spread throughout Europe into England, across to the Americas, and would forever alter the course of world history. And here we are today. We are not Catholics. We are Protestants. Those who have protested against the errors and abuses of the Catholic Church. But better yet, we're simply Christians. For we aim to base our faith and practice entirely on Christ and his word, not the Pope and his dogma. We stand in the line of the beliefs and practices known by Christ and the early church, later recaptured by the reformers. Many rediscoveries of biblical truth took place during this time, but none as significant as the doctrine of salvation. The Catholics had hopelessly obscured the the path of salvation under traditions and sacraments and works. But the reformers went back to the Bible alone as the source of truth, 
reclaiming the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone. Eventually, their teaching was summarized into five points, five pillars known as the five solas of the Reformation. Sola being Latin for alone. You have sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. Now, a couple years ago, back in October 2017, we here celebrated the 500-year anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. And we did so by preaching five sermons on the five solas of the Reformation. We're not going to do that again, but I figured since October 31st has finally landed on a Sunday, what better time to refresh our memories and recall the rich Reformed heritage we have today? This teaching is is really just the teaching of scripture. But I want to take you through the essence of the five solas this morning and show you their foundation in the Bible. This is going to be obviously just just a summary, a survey, but I I trust still profitable and impactful because anytime we get to behold the truths of the gospel in scripture, it's like we're staring right into the glory of God. And then again, for some of you, this this might be your first introduction to the the truths on which we stand, what the Bible says about these things. Do you even know why you're sitting in a, a Protestant church this morning, not a Catholic church? Maybe for you, this is just your tradition. We're not trying to replace one tradition with another tradition. We want to know what God has said in his word, what is true. And for that, we go back to the scriptures. And that's where we begin. So let's do that. The first Sola, sola scriptura, first. Sola scriptura, scripture alone is where it all starts. Anyway, this is the most important pillar because if you get this wrong, you're, you're bound to get everything else wrong. If you mess with your compass, you risk getting lost at sea. And that's what happened with the Catholic Church. The apostles of Jesus laid the foundation for the church in their writings of the New Testament. But later, Centuries later, the Catholic Church got in the business of basically expanding that foundation, stretching it farther and wider than God had said. And the church took on a a new shape, a shape it was never meant to have. The Catholic Church was not interested in sola scriptura, scripture alone, but scripture plus tradition. They believed in two sources of divine revelation, scripture and tradition. And the latter was ongoing. This is the writings of the church fathers. This was church councils, the declaration of councils and the decrees of popes. All of that became just as authoritative as the Bible. And the Catholic catechism still today says this, quote, The church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence, end quote. Still today, I mean, think about how much power this gives you. God's word has ultimate authority among the faithful, like whatever God says goes. What if you had the power to expand that whole what God has said part? You could just add to that what what you want to add. You could pretty much make the people under you do whatever you wanted them to do. Like give you money for indulgences to let their loved ones out of purgatory, even though none of that's found anywhere in the Bible. 
The reformers made this one of the biggest issues because a house built on sand can't stand. They argued that only the scriptures had supreme authority precisely because they were God-breathed. They came from God. And while like ministers and councils may sometimes give helpful teaching on the scriptures, they're still not God-breathed. They're not inspired. They're not inerrant. If they were, you know, if popes and councils and decrees, church fathers, if they really had the same authority as scripture, then they would never contradict what God had previously said. Obviously, and God cannot err. But the thing is, just, just a cursory read of the Bible shows obvious, glaring inconsistencies and contradictions between the Bible and later Catholic tradition, the beliefs and practices of the church. This includes prayer to the saints, the veneration of Mary, transubstantiation, papal authority, priestly confession, purgatory, and the sacraments, and of course, the selling of indulgences. And so, in the Middle Ages, why do you think the church tried so hard to keep the Bible out of the hands of the people? Listen to this decree from the Church Council of Toulouse in 1229 AD. It says, quote, We prohibit that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament. We most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. End quote. And as Reformation kindling started to build later on, the church enacted the death penalty for owning or reading the Bible in your native tongue. In England, for example, a monk named Richard Byfield, he was converted to true faith simply by reading the New Testament in English. For that crime, he was brutally tortured in a dungeon, severely whipped and beaten, and later burned to death as a mercy. Later, Thomas Baynard was burned at the stake simply for saying the Lord's Prayer in English. At some burnings, the priests told the people that whoever brought wood to burn a heretic would be granted indulgences, allowing them to sin for 40 days. Does that sound like Christ's vision for his church? But the Protestant reformers came to rightly reject this second source of authority, and we continue that protest today. I mean, the very foundation of the church and the Reformation is sola scriptura, scripture alone. It's the sole rule, guide, and authority for faith and practice. You need to understand, like, where, where does the authority of scripture come from? It comes from God based on inspiration. And the reason we recognize the authority of these 66 books over our lives is, is because they're inspired, which is to say that they're God breathed. They came from God. We believe that. Yes, they were written by men, but men moved and overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, such that what they wrote down was the very written word of God for his people to guide the church. And that's what gives the Bible its authority over our lives, divine revelation. You should know 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And likewise, Second Peter one twenty one says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 
And so you need to see clearly that, that the whole authority of, of the Bible comes from inspiration, that, that these men were prophets and apostles, were writing on behalf of God, being filled with his spirit. But that same inspiration was not afforded to the church fathers. The canon was closed. No more scripture was given. And look, the, the earliest church fathers recognized this fact. They never saw their writings on the same level as the New Testament scriptures. They always understood. They wrote many things, many letters, commentaries, never blurring the lines that their writings should ever be on the same level as the New Testament. They knew that the canon was closed. The age of the apostles was over. The completed word was sufficient. And the point is, you don't need anything else. This inspired scripture It's profitable for for all things, for all training in righteousness. It can fully equip you for every good work. It's totally sufficient. Like 2 Peter 1.3 says, God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You don't need anything more to know God's will for your life, how to live, what to do, what is true. This is the sufficiency of scripture. God's completed revelation is all the church needs to know God, serve God, and live for God. Luther once said, quote, A simple layman armed with scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. End quote. And that is still true. Now, obviously, look, we can only give the briefest of summaries of these five points. But, but if you don't get this first one right, there's no moving on. Sola scriptura means scripture alone. And scripture alone is our sole authority for life and godliness. But we do need to move on. Second comes sola fide. Sola fide, which means faith alone. Luther called this one the defining article of the church. That in which the church stands or falls. Because we're talking about the very nature of salvation here. How would you answer this question? How is a person justified or made right with God. God is perfectly holy and righteous. We are not. We are unholy. We are unrighteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Our sin threatens to separate us from God forever. So how can we be justified? Which means how can we be made right with God that we might be accepted by him? That's the million dollar question. This time, let's just start with the biblical answer, which is by faith and by faith alone. If you want, you can turn to Romans 3. This is a survey. We're moving fast, so you have to be very fast. But, you know, Romans 3.20, Paul states that, that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Meaning obeying God doesn't contribute to your righteousness. No, rather through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God's standard of righteousness in his word is meant to show us how hopeless it is for us to to try and save ourselves, to to justify ourselves. It's meant to show us that we only have one hope and it's in Christ Jesus. He alone has the righteousness we need. So the question then becomes, how do we get it? How do we have his perfect righteousness uh, given to us? And the answer there is, is by faith in him alone. We're talking about Romans 3.22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For, verse 28, we maintain 
that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It sounds pretty clear to me. You're not made right with God by the works of the law, by doing deeds of obedience. You're not made right by sacrifices or rituals, even obeying the Ten Commandments. You can only be made right by faith, a trust and dependency on the righteous one, Christ. And Paul supports this in Romans 4 by appealing to Abraham. Before Abraham became the father of the faith, he was a sinner and technically a Gentile. How was he justified? Romans 4.3, Paul says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. God knows we're ungodly. Even our supposed righteous deeds are like filthy rags to him, Isaiah 64, 6. We are just thoroughly defiled by sin. But thankfully, though, God can justify the ungodly. And he does so. Like Paul says, not for the one who works, but for the one who believes. And that person's faith is credited to them as righteousness. Just like Abraham, you must renounce trust in self and and depend completely on God and his son Christ. You know, all this is equally clear in Galatians, Galatians 2.16. Paul says, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. I don't see how you could say it any simpler, clearer, better than that. It's sadly ironic that the Catholics have committed the exact same error as the Judaizers who were the opponents Paul was refuting in Galatians. Their whole problem was that they added works to faith. They believed in salvation by faith. It was just faith plus works. Likewise, Catholics believe in justification by faith only It's faith plus works. You must contribute to your justification. You've got to bring your merit to the table. Christ's merits are not really enough. His work is not really enough. He got you started, but you're going to have to finish the way. Catholics teach that good works of obedience must be contributed for God to declare us righteous. And these works tend to focus on what they call the sacraments, the seven sacraments. You need, for example, the sacrament of baptism, which removes the original stain of sin. You need the sacrament of Eucharist, that's communion. That's how you participate in Christ's ongoing sacrifice. You need the sacrament of penance to get back on track because you can lose it all. All of your justification can be lost if you commit a mortal sin. Now, you're not going to find any of this teaching in Scripture, but... Hopefully you can see how, to the contrary, how clear those verses in Romans and Galatians were. And what do you know? Those just happen to be the two books Martin Luther studied, which led him to rediscover sola fide, where we're justified, we're made right with God just by faith alone. It's not by works, just by faith alone. Justification is is God's act of declaring unworthy sinners righteous. On what basis can he do that? It sounds unfair. 
but it's, it's tied to Christ's finished work. It's on that basis. And his perfect righteousness, which he has, is the word we use is imputed, given to us. And that transaction takes place by faith. Christ's merits are enough. His works are enough. And we are we're saved. We're made right with God when, when they're given to us. And that happens when we believe. I guess technically you could say we are saved by works. It's just not our works. It's Christ's work. His finished work on the cross is what saves us. On the cross, God put all of our sin debt on him. And what did Jesus then do with our sins? Colossians 2.14. It says he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He signed his name to the bottom of our sin debt. He wrote paid in full at the bottom that there's nothing left for us to pay. If you're in Christ, that there's no more debt. There's no merit you need to add. There's no purgatory in which you must wait until you make up the difference. All that is just nowhere found in scripture. It's just like Paul said to the Galatians, Galatians 3.1. He said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose, whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I mean, like, who, who told you this? Who, who led you to believe you have to contribute to your justification by doing things? Who told you this? It wasn't Paul. That just makes the cross of Christ void. He died in vain. If you, if you can justify yourself, why did Jesus even need to come? Now, these are high stakes. Because earlier... Paul said in Galatians chapter one, verse nine, he said, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. I mean, if you change the good news, the gospel message, you have a false gospel that I cannot save. It can only damn this, this here is a true dividing line. Like Luther said, it's, it's a line in the sand. You, you can't have it both ways. It's either one is true, the other is false. It's, it's an either or. But I hope you stick with scripture, trusting as Philippians 3, 9 says, to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Philippians 3, 9, that's the most potent verse there is on, on this issue. Sola fide. Now next, sola gratia, grace alone. Sola gratia. Let's talk about grace now and how it ties into the mix. We often say we're saved by grace. Catholics would say the same thing. They would say, yeah, we're saved by grace. But they wouldn't say we're saved by grace alone. And that's the sticking point with, with all of these five solas. And this third one, it's not just grace. It's, it's grace alone. That they would not say. Let's explain that. Just as Catholics add works to faith, they likewise add works to grace. I mean, these are two sides of the same coin here, but they essentially combine justification and sanctification in their teaching on salvation. So in their system, it, it kind of works like this. God gives you what they call first grace that enables you to believe. 
that prepares the soul for justification. And after that, your next necessary step is baptism. Water baptism that they believe that removes the stain of original sin. Otherwise, you go to hell. And it infuses grace into the soul. And this work of baptism is completely necessary for salvation. But that's not, that's not the completion of your salvation. That's just the beginning line of your salvation, which they view as a process. They're happy to say you are saved by grace because, look, this first grace is unearned. But it's not grace alone because the grace you need to continue and complete your salvation is very much earned. You've got to earn grace to complete and finish your salvation. This brings us to what they call second grace. And this second grace is merited, meaning you earn it. And this contributes to your justification, your right standing with God. They see this second side to God's grace as something you earn. This enables you to perform meritorious works, works that merit God's favor. The more works you perform, the more grace you merit. That in turn enables you to perform greater works and on it goes. All of this is increasing your level of justification with the hopes that you've got enough to make it in the door by the time you die. If you don't, you go to purgatory for 10,000 years until you make up the difference or whatever it is. But you can picture their understanding of grace and salvation like this. It's like telling a child to, to climb a ladder but he's not tall enough to reach the first rung. So you grab him, you hoist him up onto the first rung. Then you let him go and it's up to him to climb the rest of the way. He has to make it to the top uh, on his own and finish. You step back. Likewise, Catholics say God started us on this climb up of justification. But thereafter, you must perform works to earn merit and finish the way. The thing is, though, if this grace can be earned... It can be lost. You can fall off this ladder and God is not there to catch you. He's not there to ensure you finish what he started. If you commit a mortal sin, the justifying grace gained at baptism is erased from the soul. And so if you commit a mortal sin and then instantly die, you go to hell. That's it. The only remedy at that point is to be re-justified through a sacrament they call reconciliation. The sacrament consists of contrition, sorrow over sin. Then confession, where you confess your sins, not to God, but to a priest. Only a priest can absolve you of your sins. Then as a third step, to gain final forgiveness, you must perform deeds of satisfaction, penance. These are deeds of merit. This time you're earning forgiveness from God. Deeds of penance might include prayers. This is why you'll see Catholics praying the rosary, Hail Marys, and Our Father prayers over and over again. They're doing that to make up for what they have done. Other penances include fasting, almsgiving, self-denial. You put all this together, though, and what, what are we talking about here? It's just a huge system of merit. How do you gain righteousness before God that he'll accept you when you die? Through meritorious deeds. And then how do you deal with your unrighteousness all the times when you sin so that God might forgive you? Through penitential deeds. 
I mean, Catholics deny that they teach salvation by works. They say salvation is by grace. And yeah, they speak of grace, but they're masters of double speak because their concept of salvation is just completely intermingled with works. They might believe grace is necessary for salvation, but it is not sufficient. And that's the line right there. It's necessary, but not sufficient. That is not what the Bible teaches. Instead, we are justified before God as a pure gift by his grace, counting on the finished work of Christ. We don't need our works. His work was enough. This is essential to the gospel or the good news. Like Paul says, again, Romans 3, 23 and 24, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. These are the words Luther was reading when he came to the truth. How are we justified, made right with God? He says, as a gift by his grace. I mean, the word gift already inherently communicates that grace is unearned and undeserved. In no sense is our justification said to be earned or merited before God. In no sense. It comes as a gift on the basis of what? He says, on the basis of Christ's death. See, his work. We, we don't need to do things to justify ourselves. You don't need to go on a, a three-day barefoot pilgrimage or fast for 10 days. These were real penances given to Catholics, past and present. Now, Jesus made complete propitiation for our sins, meaning he fully satisfied God's wrath toward our sins. Now we can be made right with him. It comes through faith. But it's all given to us. This right standing with God is all given to us by, by his grace, just as a free gift. He just gives it to us. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, doesn't sound like a process, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. This once for all justification results in perfect peace before God because you know you've been made right with him. Because of the scriptures, you know you have been made right with him. In contrast, the Catholics have no peace or assurance of salvation. They never know until, uh, if they're truly saved. In fact, they say it's impossible to know until you die if you were truly saved. Where's the peace of justification from Romans 5.1? It's, it's missing. I mean, look, if you have to work for your justification, then it's no longer grace by definition. That's just what Paul said in Romans 11.6. He said, but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Again, it's, it's an either or proposition. In reality, justification is not a process. How we are saved, it's, it's an instantaneous legal declaration by God. It's a change in status. It's like when a couple gets married at the altar, they come together. And what really changes when they say their vows? They say, I do. What actually changes? They don't instantly become new people with new personalities. No, rather when their marriage covenant is sealed, What really changes first is they gain a new legal status. They are now married. 
And after that, their lives surely will change as a result. Likewise, when God awakens us to the new covenant, he brings us to faith. He justifies us. This is his instantaneous legal declaration. Our status has changed, dead to alive, ungodly to righteous, condemned to forgiven. This declaration is all by grace. And after that, our lives surely will change. If your lives don't change, then you've not been saved. But surely, this this initial salvation is by grace alone. Listen to this huge verse, Titus 3, 4 through 7. Huge verse, Titus 3, 4 through 7. He puts it all together here. Paul says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He says, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. So that being justified by grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So you see, this is why we will happily take our stand on the solid ground of grace alone. And like we sang this morning, it's an amazing grace. This is why. Like Paul said over in Ephesians 1, God saved us according to the riches of his grace. And why? He says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. We're not praising ourselves. We're not contributing. There's no boasting precisely because it's all by grace. This is our only standing before God, but this is the only standing we need because God's grace is necessary for your salvation and it is sufficient. Necessary and sufficient. All right, two more. Let's go on. Number four, solus Christus, solus Christus. Now, not surprisingly, if you have to add works to merit justification before God, then this kind of means that that Christ's work wasn't enough. Evidently, right? And yes, according to Catholics, they they surely believed you're saved by, by Christ, but not by Christ alone. And that's, again, our issue here. Here's the fundamental question. How are our sins paid for? For people to be, to be made right with God, being sinners, all believe that, that their sin debt has to be repaid in some way. So how? And Catholics teach you need, you need indulgences. You need the treasury of merit. You need penance. You need purgatory and a lot more. I mean, essential to Christianity is the fact that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. But within Catholicism, that act was not enough to fully save us. More has to be done. Yeah, Jesus made initial satisfaction for sin, but you've got to do the rest. You must make satisfaction for your own sins through deeds. This is a huge falsehood. It erases the foundation of the gospel. The scripture teaches to the contrary that Christ is our sufficient savior and that his work is the only work that matters. And consider now the book of Hebrews, which was also another book that hugely influenced Martin Luther. And the book of Hebrews is all about the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. 
He's all that we need. Listen to Hebrews 7, 26 and 27, where it says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, Christ, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. First, Jesus doesn't need to atone for himself, being sinless. And second, Jesus doesn't need to atone for us daily, because he's, he's the once for all perfect sacrifice for sin. I mean, clearly the author of Hebrews is setting up Jesus as this perfect, sufficient sacrifice and priest in one. And through him, our sins will be remembered no more, he says in chapter 8, verse 12. Hebrews 9, he goes on to contrast the old and new covenants. And do you recall that, that the pinnacle of the old covenant sacrificial system was what? It was the day of atonement. This one day, once a year, that the high priest would make atonement first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He would do this by bringing sacrificial blood into the inner sanctuary. We're we're talking about inside the temple, the room called the Holy of Holies, separated by a veil, which they only entered one time, once a year on the day of atonement. This room was the closest Israel had to the presence of God. And on this day that the priest would, would offer the blood there in that room. But even this, this greatest sacrifice, this was the greatest sacrifice they had. It still was imperfect. And Hebrews says it was not able to make perfect those who draw near. But he says in chapter 9 that with Christ came a new day of atonement. It's a day never to be repeated. And Jesus offered himself as the Lamb of God up there on the cross. And Hebrews 9 then pictures Jesus also as the high priest. He enters the tabernacle of heaven, the true heavenly temple, as the high priest. He's bringing his own blood before God the Father to make a complete, perfect, lasting atonement for his people. And he attains for them what? Eternal redemption. That's it. Eternal redemption. Listen to Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So Christ, the great high priest, the mediator of a new covenant, presents his own blood before God to do what? Just to to put away our sins forever. To show the Father complete payment has been made. It's all over. It says in verse 25 of Hebrews 9, Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now... Once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you get all this? Do you believe all this? And if you do, you need to know this is opposite Catholic doctrine.
dogma. And through their teaching on penance, purgatory, indulgences, and a lot more, yeah, Jesus can clean your initial sin at baptism, but I mean, there's still some effects of sin, which they artificially call temporal consequences. You got to pay for yourself. You have to, through deeds of merit and penance, or by suffering and purgatory, cleanse the stain of sin on your soul. God does remember your sins, and he won't let you go until you are made perfect. And you got to do that. These false teachings come from a low and unbiblical view of Christ and his sacrifice. Really, the worst offense comes from the Catholic practice of Eucharist or communion. They believe that when the priest prays over the bread and wine, it literally changes into the, the actual body and blood of Christ, which the priest then re-sacrifices to make atonement for the people. They're literally offering up Christ weekly to make payment for sins. This is a continual atonement in their Eucharist. But no, we are saved through the offering of the body and blood of Jesus once, once for all. Not every week. He offered one sacrifice for all of our sins, for all time. By one offering, he perfected us for all time. And now, if you're in Christ, our sins are remembered no more. Hebrews 10, 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering of sin. Why do we need to make offering? We've been forgiven. Don't ever cheapen or substitute that good news. Remember on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He did not say it is begun. He wasn't starting something. He was finishing something, namely atonement, payment on behalf of our sins was made in full. There's nothing left for us to contribute. Martin Luther said, quote, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the son of God has done for me, end quote. And that, that's, that's the core of the good news. It's not about what you have to do. You're the one that got yourself into trouble. It's now about what he has done for you. And that's enough. This is why the reformers had to break away from the church 500 years ago. And this is why we continue to stand in that stream. Our hope is found in Christ alone. He is the sufficient substitute sacrifice for sinners. Now we must finish number five, soli deo gloria. Soli deo gloria. Glory to God alone. This last one really ties together the others. Just as scripture alone was the foundation of all we say and do and believe. So the glory of God is the end, the result of all we say and do and believe. But Catholics truly denigrate the glory of God seen in their treatment of the saints and Mary. The word they use for this is veneration. They, of course, claim they reserve worship for God alone. They just give veneration to the priests or to the saints and to Mary. But this is just a sleight of hand. They, they control the dictionary and they've been fooling people for centuries by that. But call it what you will. They most definitely render worship to the saints and to Mary. You just think like, how is worship to God expressed? How would you know that someone is worshiping God? Well, you've got the attitude of worship. 
reverence, respect, admiration, awe, all of which Catholics give to the saints and Mary. You have sometimes the positions of worship, kneeling, bowing down, lying prostrate, all of which the Catholics apply to the saints and Mary. Then you have the two main actions of worship, prayer and praise, both of which the Catholics apply to the saints and Mary. I mean, speaking of praise, what is it but the declaration of the glory of God based on his person and works? But you will find more declaration of praise to the saints and Mary in their liturgy by volume. And what is prayer? Prayer is the chief expression of faith and trust in God. Prayer might be the highest form of worship because it involves complete confidence and faith in God's character and ability to save. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. True prayer is a true expression of faith. It's, it's worship. The Catholics spend way more time praying to Mary and the saints than to God. Just by definition of the rosary, they're praying 10 to 1, Mary to God. They turn Mary and the saints into objects of faith to whom they cry out and trust to deliver them. Just like Luther cried out when he was in trouble, the St. Anne was a patron saint of those in distress. He didn't call it to God or Christ. St. Anne help me, he said before his conversion. Even today, in many Catholic churches, you will find icons and shrines, not to God, but to the saints, to some patron saint or to Mary. And gathered around these altars, you will find the supposed faithful kneeling, bowing down, lighting candles, praying. It's, it's personal devotion. You can call it whatever you want, but according to scripture, that's worship and therefore it's idolatry. It's attributing to man what belongs to God alone. And really this, this idolatry catapults to new heights with their veneration of Mary. You know, Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, she's actually just mentioned just a handful of times in the New Testament. But over the centuries, especially since the 1800s, the past 200 years, Catholic tradition concerning Mary just grew and grew. She's evolved at this, as this figure. New beliefs have been formed. And each time it's, it's elevating Mary to a near divine figure. From her immaculate conception, where she too was born sinless, to her perpetual virginity, to her assumption where she was so holy, she was taken straight to heaven. She never died. To the fact that she's now in heaven, interceding for the church at the right hand of her son. McCathics added this huge epilogue to the Bible, and it's, it's all about Mary. They treat her like a queen, literally. She's blessed with many honorific titles, like mother of God, mother of the church, queen of heaven and earth. Just last week on our vacation, we drove by a church, a Catholic church, and it was called Mary, Queen of the Universe. <laughs> like they're running out of titles. Like, what, what else can you say? Catholics express their devotion to Mary by praying the rosary, which I mentioned has 10 prayer, 10 Hail Mary prayers for every one Our Father prayer. They're praying 10 times to Mary for every one time they pray to God. They can pay lip service to God. They can claim to worship him alone, but their practices, their deeds betray them as they transfer all the modes and expressions of worship to the saints and to Mary and say what they want. They're giving God's glory to man and to Mary. But hopefully now you understand the force of this last but not least pillar of the Reformation, Soli Deo Gloria. 
It's glory to God alone. Man is not worthy of such worship or veneration. Mary is not worthy of such worship or veneration. We can show a a humanly honor to whom honor is due, but no form of worship. That's because they're creatures, not the creator, not the redeemer. The triune God alone is worthy of worship, being supreme, being the maker of heaven and earth, being the sole redeemer of mankind. Therefore, all of our worship, 100%, must be directed to God alone. Anything else the Bible calls idolatry. And so we will very much stand here, glory to God alone. Not glory to God and the saints, not glory to God and Mary, glory to God alone. This is, I think, most pronounced in Ephesians chapter 1. And there we, the church, bless God. We don't bless Mary, we don't bless the saints, we don't bless the angels, we bless God alone. Why? It says because he saved us. Salvation is his triune work alone. God chose us, he says, and predestined us and called us in Christ to what end? It says in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Same goes for Jesus, God the Son, who accomplished the work of salvation. Jesus obtained an inheritance for us. To what end? Verse 12 says, to the end that we would be to the praise of his glory. There's no mention of the saints here. There's no mention of Mary. In verse 17, God is called the father of glory. He never calls Mary the mother of glory. Ephesians 3.21, he says that to him, to God, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And amen. What a perfect place for Paul to kind of insert a little veneration of Mary, right? But he doesn't do it. Did you know Mary doesn't show up once in all of the epistles? It's not even mentioned once. There's not a passing reference to Mary or the saints in the grand work of redemption. And this is why we, we must give all of our praise to God alone. Isaiah 42.8, God himself said, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. If you want to know how to rightly worship God, just look at how they worship him in heaven. And in Revelation 4 and 5, the Apostle John gives us a vision of that. We catch a little glimpse of the throne room of God. He's surrounded by all the saints and angels, yet all of the focus and the worship and the praise is directed where? It's to God and to the Lamb, to the Father and to the Son. Zero mention is made of Mary. I'm sure she's there as a believer, as a redeemed. She had to be saved. She's there. But she gets zero glory next to God. Not even a passing mention. Rather, her and all the redeemed and all the angels plant their noses in the ground in the worship of the true God and his only son. And John says this in Revelation 5.13. He saw every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the only picture of soli dea gloria you need. Glory to God alone. Anything more is idolatry. 
And this is a good place for us to conclude. I know this has been a lightning speed survey of, of the five solas of the Reformation. Hard to do to squeeze all five into one sermon, but I still hope this helps you mature even just a little bit further in your understanding of and confidence in the essential truths of salvation. Everything we believe must be based on the scriptures alone. The scriptures paint a picture of salvation that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because of that, it leads us to glory to God alone. That is what we will do now and forever. For, Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, Father in heaven, we, we pray before you this morning in, in worship, in true veneration and praise and thanksgiving, beholding your glory. Anytime we open up your living word and see what you have revealed, we see your glory and it calls on us to respond, to give you thanks. We thank you for the true gospel that we know we could never save ourselves. Our, our deeds of merit are worthless before you for we are defiled by sin. We've, we've all fallen short of your glory. But we recall how you sent the Savior, the once for all perfect sacrifice and high priest who gave his own life for us. His body and blood were broken and spilt for us that we might be forgiven, justified, made right with you. This is, this is your gift to us because you love us. We see how your wrath and your mercy are reconciled. They come together. They meet on the cross. They're satisfied. And we now get to enjoy grace and the blessings thereof, forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, and eternal life. We long for the day when we're with you forever, when we too enter that heavenly tabernacle. But for now, may we live out what we believe. Having been justified by faith, may our lives yield the fruit thereof. But keep us standing firm on the rock, the rock of your word, and the truth, the truths we have learned this morning. We thank you in your providence and your plan for the nations. They were rediscovered, re- recaptured, 500 years ago, may we cherish them throughout all of our lives to your glory alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.